want to join me in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, and we will be considering verses 35 to 41 together this afternoon. Mark 4, 35 to 41. It has been said that if you are a Christian, you are either coming out of a trial, you've just come out of one, or you're right in the middle of one currently. And if if neither of those first two options is the case, then you're probably about to enter one. And I think that sounds about right. No one uh, escapes trials. They're common to everyone. Uh, Some people navigate storms really, really well, while others flounder through trials and difficulties because they do not rest in the implications of Jesus' lordship and his authority. Uh, Jesus spent the day in Mark 4 teaching kingdom parables from a boat to a large crowd of people that was there on the shore. And those with ears to hear were learning uh, and growing in their understanding that Jesus is king of the kingdom. But does Jesus really have the authority and power of a king? The next four miracles in the Gospel of Mark show that he does, and that begins today in chapter 4 with verses 35 to 41, where Jesus demonstrated his divine authority specifically over nature itself, a literal storm, uh, which ironically in this passage of Scripture also serves as a personal storm in the life of the disciples. The lordship and authority of Jesus will anchor you through many, many, many storms. And that is what Jesus is about to teach his disciples. So I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 35, down through the end of the chapter, Mark 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling but he was, a, he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Uh, We are going to consider this afternoon four indisputable facts. And they are indeed that. They are indisputable. So let's begin working through these. First of all, Jesus leads you into storms. I want you to look back with me at verses 35 to 37 again. And just take note as I read these verses that it's Jesus. He's the one leading his disciples into this situation. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. That was his choice. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Uh, Jesus leads his disciples straight into a storm. In verse 35, Jesus chooses the destination. At least in this passage, he offers no explanation for why they're going there. And he decides that they should set sail for the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and basically that they should do that right away, right now. 
Apparently, Jesus doesn't even get out of the boat that he's been teaching from all day. In verse 36, he stays in the boat, the text says, just as he was, and off they go. The storm that these men end up in, they were led there by Jesus. Uh, By the way, they are in a relatively small fishing boat. In 1986, a somewhat comparable fishing boat was recovered from the mud uh, just a few kilometers south of Capernaum. And that particular boat was, to just kind of uh, give you the picture in your mind, it was 26 and a half feet long. Uh, So a little bit of length there, uh, only seven and a half feet wide. And probably the most striking feature in regards to a story like this is that boat that that was found was only four and a half feet high. These boats would hold about 15 people. And their low profile was uh, great for pulling in a, a net of fish. You don't have to... You don't have to, the clearance is so low, you could drag that net of fish over the edge of the boat, but that low profile would be terrible for waves, big waves. So their boat has 13 people in it, the 12 disciples and Jesus. It's nearly at capacity. Um, It's probably hardly sticking out of the water with its low profile. And waves are thrashing this little boat and they're lapping up into it. And it's rapidly filling And these men think, they literally think that not only is their boat going to sink, but that they are going to die, that they are going to drown. What was this storm like? Uh, We can make a few observations about it from the text. It was unexpected. Verse 37 says, and a great windstorm arose. Just boom, there it was. Uh, The other synoptic gospels use language like, behold, just bam, here comes this storm. The storm, as is common on the Sea of Galilee, came out of nowhere, and it came on suddenly. These men would have never knowingly endangered themselves like this. It was also uncontrollable. There's nothing that these men can do, obviously, to control the storm. It's entirely out of their control, and they no doubt felt that. It's also unrelenting. Mark's language in verse 37 is uh, quite vivid. He chooses a verb tense to use that... Uh, portrays the ongoing persistent nature of the situation. We read in verse 37 that the waves were breaking into the boat. It's ongoing, one wave after another coming, and then another, and then another, and then another, and then another. The waves relentlessly and incessantly came. And I think it's obvious as well that this, this storm is unmerciful. It has no mercy. When the disciples wake Jesus... In verse 38, they say these words, do you not care? And then notice the next part, that we are perishing. I don't think that's hyperbole or some kind of exaggerated statement. They're in a a, a panic and they're saying to Jesus, we are perishing, we are going to die. The storm has no mercy. It's going to kill these men. It really is that bad. Jesus leads you into storms and they often are of a similar nature unexpected. You feel that you got blindsided out of nowhere, hit from behind. It's just like you never saw it coming, and then boom. Uncontrollable. You start to realize that you can't fix the problem. You can't make it go away. Yeah, sure, you would love to do that. You would love to have that kind of power and control, but what you realize is that you don't. You can't resolve the issue. You can't control the situation. Also unrelenting. Wave after wave after wave after wave. And perhaps you feel like you're getting pummeled and thrashed about. You can't catch a break. It won't let up. You feel like you can't even breathe. And unmerciful. 
Sometimes the stakes are high. It's really bad. And the truth be told, you've got a lot to lose. There's a lot riding on whatever it is that's going on. Or perhaps there's already a lot that you have lost. Would you believe that Jesus leads you into storms like that? He's the king and he's the captain and he does that. And he often chooses the stormy way and maybe that's right where you're living today. And I think just from these first few verses, you need to recognize that the storm that you're in is no accident. In some way, shape, or form, Jesus led you there or he allowed it to happen. Allowed you to be there. Jesus leads you into storms, but we can build on that with a second indisputable fact. Jesus remains with you in those storms. Look at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is there, and he's with you in the storm. You know that Jesus is present in every single one of your storms? Every single one. And what we just read is absolutely crazy. Uh, the storm is fiercely raging, and, and Jesus is calmly sleeping. The disciples are panicking, and Jesus is undisturbed. What do we make of that? Well, I think we could observe that Jesus is not surprised or worried. You may be panicking. You may be terrified right now. You might be so disoriented by what's going on. Jesus isn't worried in the slightest. He's not disoriented or out of sorts. On the contrary, he is quite calm and he is at rest. And when he wakes up in this story, he doesn't go, oh my goodness, it's a storm. I had no idea. Oops. That is something that God never says. Oops. And further, Jesus is human too. And he understands. Verse 38 shows us the humanity of Jesus. There he is at the back of the boat, completely and totally exhausted. He is the God-man. Yes, he is God, but he is the God-man. Flesh and blood, tired and weary, physically exhausted from the day and from the previous days of ministry. All that to say this, Jesus can sympathize. He's not some distant, powerful force in the heavens. He is a person who has walked here below where you and I walk. Storms will wear and break you down. And the weariness that you feel is a weariness that Jesus knows firsthand by experience. Jesus is present in the storms. And yet, while that is a fact, Jesus feels absent in some of your storms. In verse 38, Jesus is literally asleep. All of this is going on, all the chaos. And meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping? Are you kidding? Have you ever felt like Jesus was asleep in the midst of your storm or trial or whatever was going on in your life? Well, what's the natural human response to something like that? Something that you cannot control and God seems so distant and far away? Well, here the, the natural human response is a nasty mix of fear and frustration. Just a nasty mix. You see yourself in the disciples in verse 38. We read about them and go, oh yeah, I see myself there. You might question Jesus' care. In verse 38, the disciples wake up and they say to Jesus, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? And the question has really nothing to do with the ability of Jesus. 
and everything to do with his care. And perhaps you have that same question. Jesus, do you not care about the dynamics of my work? Do you not care about the things that are happening right now with my family? I care about those things. Do you not care about the crushing burdens that I am carrying? Do you not care about the problems with my health or however long this or that's been going on? Do you not care about the fact that I am broken? I'm at the end. Do you not care about what's happening to your people here, there, or wherever? Do you not care? And that question is real. And I'm guessing that most of us here today have asked it at some point, or even if we didn't articulate it out loud, we felt it. Do you not care? You might resent Jesus for his indifference. We pick up a bit of that in verse 38, just in in the language of the disciples. You've been struggling, you've been suffering, you've been working, fighting, grinding it out, crying, drowning, whatever it is. And where is Jesus? You may find yourself, truthfully, if you're honest, resenting Jesus in your heart for his seeming indifference. And you might even start telling Jesus what you need. Uh, The disciples wake Jesus, and it seems pretty clear that they have some concrete expectations of what Jesus should be to them and what he should do for them in that particular moment. You find yourself telling Jesus exactly what needs to happen. I mean, you've got it all figured out, of course, right? I mean, you're telling Jesus what he needs to do. This is what needs to happen. You're telling Jesus when he needs to do it and how he needs to do it. You've got the solution. You just need God to act. Yeah, I think that most of us have been there. And maybe you might even rebuke Jesus for his failure to act. Do you not care that we are perishing? Sure, it comes in the form of a question. But let's just be honest, it's also a rebuke. You don't care. And you should be doing something right now. Maybe you're disappointed in Jesus and you're doing that very thing. Let's ask this question. What is it in the disciples' heart, their hearts? What's going on on the inside? And what's perhaps even going on in your own heart that's driving that kind of response? In a few verses, Jesus is going to put his finger right on it. He's just going to go right after it. They're afraid. They're horrified. And their hearts are overtaken by fear. Now, before we just throw to the disciples overboard, man, I just can't believe those 12 guys. I mean, so many problems, those dudes. Get them out of the boat. (laughs) There are elements of their response that are so commendable. We might say that their response is a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, As is often the case with us, you've got the good, the bad, the ugly, all in there together, all within a really short period of time. What, on the positive side, what do they do? They run to Jesus. This is great. This is awesome. Some of these men had spent their life on that sea. And I find it interesting that they are not saying in frustration with Jesus, oh, forget it. Don't even bother with him. You know what? He's just a carpenter. You know, he, he does things on the land with like wood and stones and tools. This space is our space. Just forget it. We don't need his help. We'll figure this out. No, that's not what they're doing. 
In fact, these men, as they cry out to Jesus, they believe that he, in the back of the boat, he is the answer to their problem. There's at least some element of faith in their response, but it's far too one-dimensional. In fact, in some dimensions, it's almost like it's not even there. There's a good chance your responses are a bit of a mixed bag, too, and you see that, and you watch that. It, you, you can see it in yourself. It's like one moment in the struggle, you're doing really well, and the next moment, your response is terrible. And through all that struggle, Jesus is there, and he is surprisingly patient. Jesus remains with you in the storms. You need to remember that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is there? A third indisputable fact is that Jesus exercises authority over storms. Look at verse 39. And he awoke, and we think he might rebuke the disciples. He awoke, and that's not what he does. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Jesus rises, and he commands the wind and sea, and he does so with authority. And as soon as he gives the authoritative command, immediately the wind and the sea obey In the Old Testament, God displayed authority over nature in some similar type of circumstances, like when Israel crossed the Red Sea. And what's very clear in that miraculous setting is that it is God above who is commanding wind and sea. And what Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee was something that should have been very obvious that only God could do. Jesus reigns with authority over nature because he is God. He has power and authority over literal physical storms. And he has power over every other kind of storm, including your personal ones. Jesus exercises authority over your storms. Uh, Just to be really clear, I did not say that Jesus calms them. I said he exercises authority over them. And that seems to be the, the heart of this passage is Jesus' authority. He can calm them. He's God. Do you believe that Jesus can do that in your situation, that he has the power and authority to calm whatever is going on? He can do that in your situation? Yes, absolutely, he can. And yet here's the thing. He can, but he might not actually do that. He can let those storms be. Why? He's God. He can let the storms rage and rage and rage and rage and rage. What kind of storms? Oh, you know, the ones that we were just talking about. Unexpected, uncontrollable, unrelenting, unmerciful storms. And with his sovereign authority, he may just let those rage on. This passage is not about the Jesus who calms storms. This passage is about the Jesus who has authority and power and dominion over them. He can calm them. Or he can let them be, and that is up to him. Jesus can calm the storms, but maybe what he cares about even more than that is actually producing a calm in in you and in me. Jesus exercises authority over storms. You need to rest in that. And it's not just that you need to, you can. You need to bend and bow before the authority of the Lord. He is the king. Maybe you you find yourself asking a question right now almost with clenched fists. Why? 
If Jesus really cared, then why? Fine, cool. He leads us in the storms. He's there with us, and he has all this power and authority. But I'm still left asking the why question. I still hate this. I don't like it. If Jesus really cared, he could make it stop, and he would. Well, there's one more indisputable fact that we need to draw our attention to uh, from the last few verses, and that is that Jesus uses storms for your good. He does, Jesus was doing something through this storm, and it's the exact same thing that he does today. What is it that he's doing? Well, he reveals where your faith is weak so that he might turn around and strengthen it. And he reveals himself. Jesus uses storms for your good. What does he want to do? He wants to grow and strengthen your faith, and he wants to show you himself. And those two things are treasures that you and I cannot put a price tag on. How do you quantify that? You can't. Two treasures. First, Jesus wants to grow your faith. That's one of the treasures he gives you through the storm, the the, the gift of a faith that's growing. Look at verse 40 with me. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still, after everything you've heard me teach, after everything you've seen me do, have you still no faith? It's interesting. Jesus ties the presence of fear to the absence of faith. That's the correlation that that he makes. Often what you and I lack is not knowledge. That's typically not the problem. Typically what we lack is trust. Fear rules our hearts because faith does not. And Jesus is putting his finger right on that issue in the life of these men. Jesus poses this question, do you trust me? The presence of fear comes from the absence of faith. And Jesus is using this chaotic, terrible storm to reveal where their faith is weak. And he's doing that for you. He's taking all of the the, the various storms of life And through him, he is bringing something to the service. He is exposing something where your faith is weak and vulnerable. But he also uses storms to strengthen that faith. Uh, One person said that soldiers realize that it's war that makes generals. That is so true. Jesus uses storms for your good. He wants to grow your faith. And there's a second treasure. Jesus wants to show you himself. He wants to reveal himself. He wants you to see his glory. Look at verse 41. Jesus has uh, risen from his sleep. He's calmed the wind and the wave with a word. And immediately they obey. And we see the disciples' response in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. I think in the original, the idea is they feared a great fear. And said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. What did Jesus do all throughout chapter 4? I mean, if you just look back over that chapter, what was Jesus doing? He explained to his disciples that he was the king. And that his kingdom had come. If verses 1 to 34 of chapter 4 are the classroom, then verses 35 to 41 are the lab. 
If you take a science class or a chemistry class, a cooking class or a shop class, you can learn all kinds of things in the classroom, right? I mean, you can fill your head with book knowledge, for sure. But it's often in the labs or the hands-on part where everything that was learned in the classroom really starts to come together. The king has taught his pupils about his authority and power. He's spoken it. He's declared it. And they've been in the classroom, but now he escorts them off to the lab. And we might think if a king was going to take you to his lab, he would take you to his royal palace. And he would take you to his throne room. And there we might see God seated upon his throne in all of his regalia and power and authority with a crown. But he does not take his disciples to a majestic place right like that. Rather, he takes them to the raging sea. That is the lab. Jesus' disciples saw him on the dark sea that night in a way that they had not seen him earlier that day in the sun. Could it be that your storms are actually extremely special treasures from God? Look at verse 41 again. And notice the disciples' response. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Let even the wind and the sea obey him. Two elements of their response stand out. They have seen and they have recognized the power and authority of Jesus over nature. And they are beginning to grasp that he is indeed the king. They're grasping it perhaps in a way that they hadn't earlier in the chapter. But something else happened. Their fear gives way to another type of fear that far, far surpasses their original fear. Awe and worship, that type of fear. Awe and worship of the king replace the fear of the storm. We could say that the fear of God drives away all other fears. Once God, once they see Jesus in his glory and fear him for who he is, once they have eyes to see him in his glory like that, their other fear dissipates. And that's where this text ends. They're marveling in awe at God, at Jesus Christ, for his power and glory and dominion. The text ends with that fear, not the fear of the storm. And there's been a very clear progression. In verse 37, if you just cast your eyes over that verse, you'll see in there that there was, to to use the specific language of the text, there was a great windstorm or a great storm, verse 37. And then if you cast your eyes over verse 39, you'll see something else. Then there was a great calm. And then you get to verse 41, and what do you read about? It was great storm, great calm, then what? Great fear. And it's like mega great fear in verse 41. That's the progression. And that's what God does with us. Jesus leads you into great storms. Why why would he lead you into a great storm? So that he might show you his greatness so that your fear, awe, and worship of him would be greater than it all. In 1982, two Soviet cosmonauts stayed in orbit a record-setting 211 days. And I guess there are a lot of things you think about astronauts, cosmonauts, uh, things that we don't really think about. When you remove gravity from the equation, you introduce a lot of other factors and problems. 
211 days without gravity, basically little exertion was required for these men, right? You exert yourself too much and you probably bang your head on the side of the spaceship. Like you just, it's just too much. And over time, this had a huge, huge impact on their bodies. And they came back to earth after 211 days with all kinds of problems, dizziness, high pulse rates, uh, walking trouble, uh, major, major muscular atrophy, bone density problems. Their muscles began to waste away from lack of use. There was no gravity. And much has been learned <coughs> about space travel since that time. Astronauts now have an intense regimen of exercise, something like two to three hours a day, where they're just exercising and experiencing resistance. Uh, they often even wear forms of resistance clothing. In short, without regular strain and exercise, an astronaut will not be healthy. In fact, he won't even hold steady. He'll decline. And our Lord knows that the same is true for us. You will not do well in a life without adversity. You need it. Trials are a necessary part of God's plan to grow you and strengthen you and build your faith and help you grow in your knowledge and understanding and worship of the Lord. Jesus uses storms for your good, to grow your faith and to show you himself. And I think that the greatest illustration that I could give you of this comes from one of the men who was on that little fishing boat that day. Uh, in my Bible, I underline the word care in verse 38. Matthew and Luke, uh, in terms of the Gospels, you have what's called the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're, they're all recording many of the same events. And John has its, a, a ton of stuff, his content, that's not in the other three. But Matthew and Luke both record this particular story as well. But Mark is the only one to include that word or idea, the idea of care. Do you not care? It's unique to his gospel. And so I underlined it in my Bible, and I made this note in the margin. See 1 Peter 5, 6-9. And remember that it's Peter that's behind Mark's gospel. So I want to invite you to turn there to 1 Peter chapter 5, 6 to 9. Um, Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. He was never on that boat. What's recorded in his gospel is commonly understood to have come from the preaching and eyewitness testimony of Peter. The gospel of Mark, in some ways, it's like it's the gospel of Peter. And Peter remembers saying these words with the other disciples, do you not care that we are perishing? Well, if you're there in 1 Peter chapter 5, 6 to 9, note these words of Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. There's a recognition of God's sovereignty and power and authority. And Peter's telling all of us, to humble ourselves under that. Humble yourselves there under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And then a particular interest comes, verse 7, casting all your anxieties or cares upon him. Why would you do that? Well, Peter tells us here's why you should do that. Here's the reason, because he cares for you. 
What was once a question for Peter is now a confidence. On the Sea of Galilee, it's, Lord, do you not care? 1 Peter chapter 5, why would you cast all your burdens on him? Because he does care. What was once a question for Peter is now a confidence, and that confidence came, I would assume, at least in part, through the storm. I don't know about you, but I think Peter grew that day on the boat, and probably the other, the other men probably did as well. Peter had seen the Lord, and his faith and his trust in the Lord grew. That's what God does. The lordship and authority of Jesus will anchor you through any storm. And that's what Jesus set out to teach his followers that day. Uh, you have a choice to make. Will you trust the lordship and authority of Jesus? Will you do that through the storm? Would you bow your head with me at this time? We're all going to have the chance to individually pray to the Lord. So I want to encourage you to do that over the next few moments here before I pray to, to just bow your head and worship the Lord in prayer, uh, however he might lead you to do that in this moment. And then I'll close this momentarily.